Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll learn about the services offered to veterans in a low-key setting in Scranton. We'll hear from Pennsylvania's chair of the Republican Party about President Trump's recent visit to Harrisburg and what's planned to capitalize on his historic win. We'll also discuss the allure of crime with an author who's part of a team with a new book on the oft-discussed subject. The aftermath of the Vietnam War illustrated how difficult it could be for veterans returning home after a very personal and sometimes traumatic experience. In 1979, the Vet Center program was authorized by Congress to make re-entry into civilian life easier. In 1991, Congress widened eligibility to those who served in the post-Vietnam era. Later, veterans of World War II and Korea were included. Services were also extended to grieving families as well. Scranton's Vet Center on Pittston Avenue is a welcoming facility with a laid-back vibe and a litany of programs to aid in many areas, including resume building, individual, and group counseling. To get insight into the work of the center, we recently sat down with Joseph May, readjustment counselor and therapist. I joined the National Guard in 2000, and I deployed to Iraq in 2004 with the 109th Field Artillery. We were attached to the 2nd 103rd Armor Group out of Tamaqua. I was in Iraq from 2004 to 2005 with Camp Slayer and with the Iraq Survey Group. We came back in March of 2005, and I started working at the Vet Center in March of 2006. Tell me about the vet center what it is and maybe what it isn't we are an outpatient clinic we are a branch of the va that specifically deals with uh, veterans and their readjustment issues they have from uh, returning from a deployment we work with veterans that have combat trauma military sexual trauma bereavement counseling family counseling drug and alcohol counseling we offer a wide range of services in a very non-clinical setting right in scranton For people don't know what a non-clinical setting is can you talk about the atmosphere that you have here. When I first started at the Vet Center, we had this kind of like coffee shop motif where it's a little more laid back. It doesn't look like a hospital when you walk in. I remember when I first came here, um, I actually came in here after my deployment. I actually came in here thinking this was like um, like a Veterans Resource Center. That's kind of how they started the brand back in the early 80s. It was kind of a one-stop shop for veterans before we got a little more specific and started doing a lot more mental health counseling. I came here because when I came back, I quit my job on my deployment. I came here thinking that they could help me do some resume building, do some workshops and stuff. They did help me do that. At that point, we were just, you know, we try and help veterans any way we can. And if a guy walks in the door, you know, wanting help with a VA loan or wanting help with, a, you know, possibly getting a service officer to work on his claim, GI Bill information, we offer all those different things we can help veterans with. 
but our main focus is mental health counseling. And you offer mental health counseling for veterans going all the way back to World War II. Yes, our services pretty much cover anybody who is deployed World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Lebanon, the Yugoslavian operations to include Bosnia, Desert Storm, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Originally, they were started in 1979. It was uh, Vietnam Vets. It was Vietnam Vets for Vietnam Vets. That was the original Vet Center experiment, and they expanded the eligibility over the years. But for about a while, it was mostly Vietnam Vets. And then they included Korea, World War II, um, Desert Storm, and then Iraq, Afghanistan in you know, early 2000s. You have groups that meet here of these various veterans. Are they sectioned off according to the wars or conflicts they the men and women were in? Yeah, we, we found um, just through, you know, experience over the years that just having each veteran group kind of specific to their time period just seemed to work a little better. We have a couple mixed groups we tried. We, um, we, we used to do a mixed veteran group. We had a Purple Heart veteran group that we tried. The veterans seem to kind of have a little bit, they stick better together when we have them in their separate groups. We only do it just because it makes them more comfortable. You know, we're open to, you know, we have open groups. We try new things a lot. Um, we did, we used to have a sober vet group. We did with veterans going, you know, with sobriety issues. The group that I do is probably one of the most, you know, most encompassing groups. It ranges from um, Desert Storm, you know, 1991 through Bosnia, Kosovo. Iraq, Afghanistan. So, I mean, that's a pretty pretty wide time range. The Vietnam groups are, you know, mostly for veterans who are in Vietnam. And we had a World War II Korea group that we kind of combined only because the numbers were just a little lower and we just kind of had those veterans together. But we start groups all the time. I mean, I do an incarcerated veterans group at some of the prisons. We actually have groups out in the community. We have some places we have called Community Access, but where we actually do groups not here in Scranton, but out in the community where the veterans are a little more comfortable just not having to drive an hour for therapy. They can just go down the road. Looking at this experience of returning home from Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera, and the people that you see, can you give us a little bit of a window? Because a lot of us are just civilians and we don't have veterans in our family and maybe we don't understand. What are the issues that are the most prominent that you take care of? I'd say the biggest thing that we work on is breaking down the stigma of readjustment counseling, any kind of post-traumatic stress they may be experiencing, just breaking down that stigma of it's okay to come in and talk to somebody. A lot of people do it. Like I said, the, the vet centers have a big, um, uh, we, we, we really pride ourselves on our confidentiality. But a lot of times I'm like, I, sometimes I wish I could have, you know, a poster at the end of the hall to show the faces of all the people that have been here. Cause I feel like sometimes that's the biggest problem is guys will come in and say, oh, if so-and-so only knew I was here and I'm sitting here thinking so-and-so was just here because as therapists, we can't divulge that information. I feel like a lot of times that's the biggest barrier we have to break down. Part of my job is to do outreach. And I used to go to the armories and I would go to the reserve centers and I would talk to these individuals in a group and I would tell them all about the wonderful things the VA and the vet center could offer. And they would all sit there and, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. You know, I always always call it planting the seed. And I would always kind of plant that seed of education and explain to them what we could do. And then just kind of sit back and you know, a week or two later, I would get a phone call or something like that. But it's hard in a group setting to get you know the correct information out to people and kind of have the vet, let that set in with the veterans and let them see what's available to them. There's a lot of misconceptions about who the VA serves, about who the vet centers serve. 
a lot of people just think just because they're a veteran, they can go to the VA for any kind of health care at any point in their life. And there's certain eligibility and certain criteria they need to meet in order to go to the VA medical center. And I think a big thing that people need and the biggest thing that veterans need is education on what they're eligible for. How long did they serve? Um, what kind of treatment are they looking for? Are they looking for treatment for just themselves or their family? Exactly what they're looking for because it's such a wide umbrella and people just assume they can go there for everything. We do a lot of outreach with our mobile unit. We have a big 40-foot Winnebago we travel in, and I'd say nine out of 10 people that come on the bus just wanna know what am I eligible for. That's all they wanna know. And we give them that information, and a lot of times that just makes their day and they go on and they can either apply to the VA or come back and see us for something else. Once in a while we'll get someone coming in saying they're having some issues from a recent deployment or something, but a lot of time it's just giving out good, good information and that good information will travel a little further and someone will hand that pamphlet off to somebody else. And I think that gives the veterans, you know, that's, I get the best accomplishment from that when I see someone get, leave with a, you know, a more satisfied answer of just you know because people just think oh they can just go to the VA for anything they want I like to be able to say well you can if this or if that and try and give them the best information I can get or if you're interested in counseling I can do it right here sit right down we'll have a talk right now talk a little bit about readjustment counseling I think a lot of us have this perception that when someone's loved one returns from a deployment that it is overwhelmingly joyful that they actually made it back but from their perspective there's a huge adjustment that's underway that maybe some of us just don't understand because we haven't been there. So talk a little bit about what you do. One of the big things we work on with people is they go from being in a very high tempo, very camaraderie filled, very active lifestyle when they're in a deployment status and coming home to coming back to their home life a lot of times. And the unique thing about this area is that a majority of our veterans are more majority of our local combat veterans are national guard or reservists because we don't have an active duty post close by so scranton differs from say fort drum new york or you know somewhere down in virginia that has a lot of navy or something like that northeast pa kind of has a, a unique situation where a lot of our deployed veterans were national guard or reservists where they go from you know uh, working an everyday job having a nine-to-five job drilling on the weekends and then all of a sudden they get a call up they get an alert status they're going away they go away for a certain amount of time depending when they went you know my deployment was a little longer but then they shortened they actually some of them were longer than that but then they shortened it down to exactly one year which i guess the national guard felt that was acceptable so they go from you know their lifestyle completely changes they go from you know being a guy who you know, went away once a month to all of a sudden now they're going out doing stuff every day and a lot of the veterans have a hard time kind of stepping back from that active status, you know, kind of like, you know, we talk about like, you know, pumping the brakes a little bit, having someone kind of like come home. A lot of the things that I hear, it's usually not the veteran who will actually come in and say, hey, I want to talk to somebody. It's usually a brother, a sister, a wife, a mother, a father, or somebody will say, hey, I really wish Billy would talk to somebody about these different things. And it's just getting someone to talk about their experiences and talk about what has changed and what's different and, you know, what does my wife expect of me now or what do they think I should do? And a lot of times it's just trying to explain to them that, you know, you're not broke, you're just changed. Some things changed and now you're just trying to figure out who you are now. How did this deployment change you? And trying to talk about the different things and, you know, I don't really go right into a whole, everyone has post-traumatic stress. That's a whole other topic. You know, if they experience a trauma and there's 
symptoms of post-traumatic stress there. We can talk about that. But I usually try and just try and make it very generalized and talk about what do you think? Why does your wife want you to come in? Why does your why does your, your mother or father think you should come in and talk to us? What do you think has changed? What do you want to change? What would you like them to see? What would you like them to know about your deployment? What are you afraid to tell them about your deployment? Because a lot of guys feel like they don't want to tell their family members things because they'll scare them about what they may or may not have done or what they experienced or what they saw. And they feel like they can they can tell that to me or they can tell that to one of the therapists at the VA because we're a little more trained for that. And I think a lot of it's just getting them to open up, become comfortable with that, and then from there we can you know go in a lot of different directions of what you know they need therapy wise. You talked a little bit about post traumatic stress disorder, and I would imagine that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. But can you talk generally about it? One of the biggest things is people automatically assume just because there's a problem that it's automatically post-traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's basically our job is to figure out exactly what they have, what, what kind of diagnosis do they have. And from there we go from what kind of treatment do they want? Do they want to work on you know some cognitive behavior treatments? Do they want to do some prolonged exposure treatment? Do they want to just talk? They want talk therapy. Do they want medications? Do we have to work with the VA? A lot of times most of our patients will come here for you know one-on-one weekly sessions, group sessions, and they'll go to the VA for bi-monthly appointments or for their medications or something like that. A lot of times we see you know both of those work the best. You know, talk therapy and some medication work the best. Individually, they work good. If you're just taking medications, they work good. If you're just doing both together, we found that there's a good recovery with that. And a lot of times, it's just I found in my experience, it's just kind of putting names and labels on a lot of things that everyone kind of experiences. One of the biggest ones I feel is like hypervigilance is just having that when veterans are in the you know in a deployment status they kind of have to have that 360 awareness where they're always on a swivel and they're always looking for something, and they come home and that hypervigilance is very hard to take away because they're just constantly you know, looking for the next opportunity. And the big thing about post-traumatic stress is that it's basically your body's reaction to the next trauma that you may experience. It's recovering from that trauma that you experienced and your body just waiting for the next one to happen. So it's kind of a weird thing because it may never happen, but your body's constantly in a state of if it does. So it's, you know, you're trying to tell someone, you know, well, you know, you have to remember that you're back in Pennsylvania and, you know, they're driving down the highway and they may see something on the side of the road and they automatically think that that might be, but then they have to do a quick grounding technique of where am I? You know, what am I driving? Where am I driving? What highway am I on? So there's, we do these little, you know, these little techniques and these little things we talk to them about. And a lot of time it's just categorizing something or something they may be feeling and just explaining to them what it is, explaining to them, you know, how to react to it and just trying to normalize it, basically. We hear a lot in the media about veterans who decide to take their own lives. In this area, in your outreach, is that something that family members can look for certain signs for veteran suicide is, is a is a it's a big epidemic. I've seen the numbers before. It's something that I you know personally try to talk about or work about every day. The biggest thing I think people have to know is that it's 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 good to talk. People need to talk about it more. Not talking about it, not calling somebody, not reaching out for help. That's not the answer. I remember. Years ago, when I went back to school, one of my professors, it was I took a class because I wanted to know more about it because I felt that I there was so much to know. I just couldn't wrap my brain around why this was the answer for somebody. And one of my professors said, you know, that suicide is a is a a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it was just one of those things that I try and address to people. And I know there's people that you know experience 
um, loss and they don't know how to cope with things. But there's always someone out there that can help. And, you know, they should always try and reach out and talk to somebody. There's lots of veterans that want to help. There's lots of different veteran organizations. There's lots of phone numbers that can help. There's lots of different people who can just answer a phone call and talk to a veteran and give them some information and just try and help them through a situation. I know our new secretary has a, um, a new suicide prevention. You know, we're going to be launching a new program called uh, the Getting to Zero Initiative, timely identification of outreach to at-risk veterans. I know the VA has crisis prevention coordinators that work full-time down there. We work with them on a regular basis. You know, if a veteran mentions certain things that they will talk to the veteran you know, set their appointments up. They follow up with us. If we have veterans that we feel are at risk, we will call the VA, make sure that they're being seen. If they're on a weekly call list, they'll be called and followed up with. But it's one of those things that I feel something that I, you know, something I wish we could work harder on, something that we could, you know, take care of because I believe that the, you know, the numbers, you know, don't justify everything. It's definitely something that I've, when I first got into this, I don't want to say I was scared, but I was naive but I feel like I really you know, wanted to get more involved in it. And the more I heard about it and the more veteran suicides I heard about and the more that it became a bigger topic, I became more and more open to talking about it with veterans. It's one of the first questions we ask veterans when we're doing a screening with them. We sit down and we talk to them. Have you had any losses? Have you thought about suicide? Have you have a plan? And just saying the key words and just saying those words doesn't make it any worse. So what you're saying is that Although it seems taboo to talk about it, if there is an opportunity through either a brochure or something you have hanging on your bulletin board, a book, that some people will actually open up because they want to be asked. Absolutely. That's a good point. And what you said taboo is perfect because I feel like that is. I feel like a lot of times I'll have someone or I may meet someone and that's on their mind, but they won't mention it until I do or until they see the opportunity or the opening to talk about it. If they see a brochure or if they see something hanging or they see a book on the wall or a book on the shelf dealing with crisis or a crisis, or they'll give you the scenario of, I have a friend who may or may not be thinking about that. But I feel like once that once that door is open and they can talk about it, they become a lot more comfortable talking about it and you can get out of them a lot of times what the problems are. Where we live, there are many, many people who suffer from drug and alcohol addiction. It's not only veterans, it's a lot of people. Is that something that is a big part of your work, working with those kinds of issues? Particularly here in the Vet Center, um, we have some people that are dual diagnosis where they do have a drug and alcohol problem and they have a mental health problem. But majority of our veterans who do drug and alcohol, drug and alcohol treatment will do it through the Wilkes-Barre VA, either inpatient or outpatient. Um, some of the veterans I work with between the veterans treatment courts may have you know, drug and alcohol problems and mental health problems. We focus more on the mental health problems here, and like I said, we have the, the sober vet group over at the icebox for the veterans in this area, and then they have the groups of the VA they specifically work with. I think it just depends on the caseload. Sometimes I have more veterans that may or may not be in recovery, some veterans that are you know working the program. Through the Veterans Treatment Court, I have you know quite a few of them just because they happen to... Um, have the dual diagnosis. They go into the Veterans Treatment Court for you know, you know, possibly a small nonviolent offense and through the treatment court they get referred to the VA and then the VA kind of looks at it and says are they eligible for the Vet Center then they can come here. But we mostly deal with more of like the mental health aspects. 
If someone is listening to this and they haven't reached out to you, what what are the criteria in a brief synopsis if they if they're interested in, in speaking to someone? Do they have to be from Lackawanna County or can they be from somewhere else? And uh, what what else do they need to know if they want to reach out to you? Okay, no, the vet centers are a, a VA program. Um, there are about 300 throughout the entire country. There's 300 brick and mortar vet centers, which is the office. Our office in Scranton is brick and mortar. We also have about 100 mobile vet centers, which is our big fancy Winnebago we drive around in. We have three of those in Pennsylvania. And then the mobile vet centers are in Erie, Harrisburg, and Scranton. And we pretty much divide the state in three. And we travel all over the place and we talk to veterans in rural areas and the mobile vet center program is a little bit more rural initiative we try and get out to areas where veterans don't necessarily have a quick ride to do a, a quick uh, community clinic or um, VA medical center the vet center is pretty much a program where any veteran can come in and ask any questions they want get any kind of information they want any veteran of any era any time frame can come in and pretty much get basic VA information you know we don't turn anyone away we try and help anybody we can and but to get our services to get the mental health counseling services through the vet center you have to be a war theater veteran which just means um, you were deployed even if you're national guard or reservist as long as you're deployed that's your your one criteria to get in military sexual trauma any era can come in for counseling and we also do bereavement counseling for um, veterans um, families who are killed in action our services even on the mobile vet center are provided all free of service lifetime Free of service. There's no time limit. There's no eligible other than the being in the combat theater. No eligibility requirements. Um, they can be Vietnam. They can be Korea. They can be Desert Storm. They could have gotten home yesterday. That's Vet Center of Scranton readjustment counselor and therapist Joseph May. For more information on the center's programs, visit www.vetcenter.va.gov. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Donald Trump's surprising victory in unpredictable Pennsylvania gave the state's Republican Party an unexpected boost, as many voters registered to become part of the grand old party because of the candidate. Trump marked his 100th day in office with a rally in Harrisburg. Val DiGiorgio, chair of the Pennsylvania Republican Party, was there. He spoke to us this week about the event and other issues of interest in the Keystone State, including next year's election, which will be highlighted by a gubernatorial contest. Yeah, I was there. I was the MC for the for the program. We had about twelve thousand people in the, in the farm show arena, and it was it was electric. And um, president gave a great speech. I got to spend a little time with him before his speech. He's very appreciative of Pennsylvania. He was happy to spend his uh, to have spent his hundred day with us as opposed to inside the Beltway at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I think it said it said a really good message for what he's all about. If he is appreciative for what the state of Pennsylvania did for him, mm-hmm. Val, what are some of the things that he might be able to do through the, the, the government to somehow do something about the, the stagnation that, that Pennsylvania is undergoing at the moment? Yeah, well, it's funny. He, he talked about that with me, and he some of it he's already 
doing, which is cutting the size of the regulatory state. You know, simple things like if you want to introduce a new regulation, you have to get rid of two old ones. And just cutting the size of, uh, you know, the, the, the EPA's overreach into um, in, uh, in creation of regulations which affect our ability to do to have coal mining, to create steel jobs. Things like that is where he started his focus, and that's already having a, a great effect. Earlier in the day, he went and visited uh, a company called Ames, which has been around since 1774, making gardening equipment. You buy their stuff uh, at, at Home Depot and Lowe's. You know, the, the owners of that business uh, and the executives there were just thrilled to have him there. He's, it's already having a positive effect, um, him cutting the size of uh, the regulations in, in Washington. Yeah, I think that that's great. And I would like to obviously uh, ask you about that kind of manufacturing. I mean, here's a company that's been in Pennsylvania since 1774 making this gardening equipment. Uh, What else is on the horizon or or what do you think may come our way if these uh, regulatory constraints are are sunsetted. In in other words, what is attractive to businesses when they see the state of Pennsylvania? Because uh, we we see that, and and we'll get into it, that there is a budget shortfall in the state because everything looks uh, fairly flat. So what is attractive? What what can happen here, in your opinion? I mean, Pennsylvania's got its own unique set of challenges. A lot of it we have to handle locally at the state level. But just getting a president and a tone in Washington where you're getting out of the way of a coal mine, you know, a coal company, a steel company, you're buying America first uh, for your steel. You're creating an environment where we can use the, the energy that's literally beneath our feet in the shale to help make America energy independent and keep, you know, keep uh, heating costs and energy costs low in Pennsylvania, which will attract new businesses. You know, there's a lot we can do if the federal government and the state government would just simply get out of our way. And that's the tone that the president is setting. Now, in Harrisburg, you know, uh, we have Republican leaders who understand this. We need a governor who understands it as well, because the Governor Wolf's DEP is making it very difficult for us to, to harness that energy underneath our feet. He, you know, wants to add additional taxes to an industry that's already on its feet, the energy industry, uh, because of low low prices, low energy prices. So it's, you know, we need leaders at every level who understand these challenges we have. Yeah, and I know in in uh, town here uh, earlier this week there was a, a hearing that was held about a severance tax on the Marcellus Shale and there are people here Val who are saying and and when you hear it it makes sense to your ear that if Pennsylvania has this rich resource that can be tapped and export it, why would we not want to reap a benefit through a tax with it? And I think when that question is posed that way, a lot of people say, yeah, why wouldn't we? So yeah, why wouldn't we? Number one, we have to stop thinking of private enterprise in this country as a vehicle for more, for the, you know, to satisfy what's an insatiable demand of the left for more and more government spending. That's number one. But second, to answer specifically the question, why wouldn't we tax it? We already do tax it. We have the highest uh, corporate tax or the second highest corporate tax in the nation. These companies are already being taxed on that, not to mention an impact fee, which goes to goes to local government. So they're already being taxed. But let's let the industry get off of its feet before we start to think about, 
you know, imposing additional taxes on it. A lot of folks like to compare us to Texas, where they have a, an extraction tax on oil and gas. But Texas doesn't have the income tax that we have. So, you know, you're talking about double and triple taxing an, an industry that's in its infancy in this state. Let's let it get off its feet. Let's, let's let it create jobs. That will in and of itself create revenue. It will keep our young people home in Pennsylvania. It will bring, it will bring manufacturers who want access to local energy at a cheap price here to Pennsylvania. So I think you could create more revenue by not imposing high taxes on this industry, especially from the start. There is a story from the Associated Press that indicates the State Department of Revenue here in Pennsylvania reported it has a shortfall in excess of $1 billion in the first 10 months of our fiscal year. And that is uh, more than 4%, a bigger margin at this point than any fiscal year since 2010. What is going on economically in the state that has uh, created this? I'm going to use the word malaise. I don't know what else to say, but it doesn't sound good. And we know that a budget is being put together. And uh, we understand that this uh, certainly creates an additional layer of problems. What do you think about this? Uh, it's been a, you know, we have a spending problem in Pennsylvania. Got dramatic uh, increases in the size of government when it, you know, especially in the healthcare area. And we've got to get a handle on spending, number one. But second, Pennsylvania needs to have, you know, we have to do something about pension. Pensions are a big, big driver of this. Um, you know, the tax increases at 60 billion plus. Uh, 60 billion plus unfunded liability that we have uh, is driving up the cost of government as well as, like I said, Medicare, Medicaid expansion. Um, we've got to get a handle on the spending. But we also have an economic problem in Pennsylvania. And the question is, do we solve these problems by becoming Illinois or, or California or New Jersey? In other words, taxing our way to try to get to some sort of uh, budget um, uh, to, to satisfy our budget needs? Or do we create growth? That's the decision that needs to be made. That's the decision the Harrisburg leaders are going to have to make over the next uh, couple, uh, couple months. A lot of people, Val, where we live, um, are, are hurting. And uh, one of the things that really gets under their skin is that leadership in Harrisburg is not willing to do anything about the reformation of the property tax system. And uh, we know that schools need to be paid for. We get that. We know that uh, constitutionally people are entitled to a good education. We know that. But we also know that uh, Grandma has paid property taxes for 60 plus years and uh, she's financially strapped. Does the GOP leadership in Pennsylvania recognize the gravity of that tax payment, not only to seniors, but to people considering possibly getting a house somewhere in the state? And they look at that and look, we know it's not as high as, oh, I don't know, New Jersey, but for people who live here, it's a real burden. Yeah, it's a, property tax is a real burden. It's an out, outmoded way of collecting taxes to fund schools. But the problem, and, and, and our legislative leaders do understand this. The problem is there is no consensus, and this is not a new issue. This has been an issue that's been around 40, 50 years. They've been trying to work on this in Harrisburg. I worked for a state senator you know, in the 90s who uh, was chairman of the Finance Committee at the time, uh, and we were trying to, to grapple with this issue. The problem is... You know, eliminating the property taxes, which is being proposed, and I'm not saying I'm against that proposal, I just, the pitfalls are, you know, you will take away local control of schools. Right now, 
school boards are able to control the curriculum and other things that, and the budget in their school district because they have the power of the, the purse. If you tell them that they can no longer lo- levy property taxes, you effectively make Harrisburg legislators a super school board. And decisions will be made out of Harrisburg. Uh, and, and local control of schools has worked in this country for, you know, two, over 200 years. So that's one thing we have to be mindful of. The other thing is we can give that relief to seniors, but that, that burden will have to be shifted on to younger people. Younger people who are already getting educated here but then leaving the state for other opportunities. So we have to be careful in, you know, in a generational shift in taxation. Um, from one to the other, because that that will have its own effects. Uh, but this is a very complicated issue. It's not. It's not. The reason it doesn't get done is because there are so many counter. Here's another issue. What happens to all those bonds that are being backed up by property tax revenues that school boards have issued? How do you you know? How do you handle that? What does that mean for the bond market? What does it mean for local school districts' ability to borrow for important capital projects? And these are just some of the issues that we're faced with. So legislative leaders, it's not that they're not committed to reducing property taxes. It's just that this is an issue that's fraught with peril and a lot of different countervailing political uh, forces. I'm thinking that because of the uh, the way that uh, Pennsylvania is moving and um, some of the things happening, the Republicans most certainly have a great, great, great chance to get a candidate for governor next year who uh, takes down Tom Wolf. I, I, I think that the, the, the possibilities are, are terrific. And I'm hoping that there is a, a primary that is open and the voters get to select a gubernatorial candidate of their choice. How do you see that? You know, the decision of whether, if we're talking about endorsement, of whether to mm-hmm. endorse is one the state committee members need to make. Uh, I sort of always rejected the premises that because state committee endorsed, it's a closed primary. I mean, you can look at our experience in the Senate race uh, a few years back, uh, actually about six years ago now, five years ago, when you know the Republican Party endorsed a candidate, um, but five other candidates ran, and the candidate uh, who won, Tom Smith, was not endorsed. So I don't think an endorsement closes a primary. But uh, that's a decision the state committee members make. Okay. Well, so nevertheless, we've got some, you know, Scott Wagner is one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen with a, a great populist message. Um, and we have um, uh, Paul Mango who's going to announce shortly, uh, right after the primary, a smart guy. Um, and uh, possibly uh, House Speaker Mike Terzai, who's been a champion of education reform and, and energy, uh, in, you know, using our energy to, to bring Pennsylvania back. So we've got some, we already have some good candidates expressing interest. And uh, certainly where we live, sometimes there is a, a lack of fortitude to put up a Republican candidate against some pretty powerful uh, rep- state reps, et cetera. There have been times when those opportunities have uh, slipped by the wayside. But I understand mm-hmm. your philosophy is that if you believe someone is a, is a good, strong candidate, you're going to be in it to win it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I'm out of the county chairman. I still am in Chester County. Um, I've supported races where no one gave us a chance to win, including a 68% performing Obama seat district, where we won that seat by recruiting a, you know, a really great candidate, African-American, lifelong Republican, former principal and track coach. And we won that seat. Uh, no one thought we could win it. Um, so, yeah, we had a candidate that's working hard who shares our, our ideals, 
um, I'm going to stay in there in the foxhole with them to the end. That's Val DiGiorgio, chair of the Pennsylvania Republican Party. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Our fascination with crime seemingly knows no bounds, judging by the number of television shows, films, and books about notorious lawbreakers. The crime book recently came out, and it's both a narrative history of characters like Jack the Ripper, Bonnie and Clyde, and Jeffrey Dahmer, as well as a graphically pleasing experience with charts, photos, and illustrations to complement the text. Kathy Scott is a contributor, and she spoke to us recently about her work, covering crime. I think it's something most people aren't touched by horrible crimes. I mean, I think crime does sort of affect almost everybody at some point in their lives. But I think, you know, we lead our lives and people plot along in their own and and it's sort of a, a window into a subculture that people are absolutely fascinated with and can't get enough of it. It's like driving past a car crash and you turn your head to look. And uh, young lady, what made you fascinated? Because you've written a couple books besides the work you've done on this, uh, Tupac Shakur and Biggie. Why did you get attracted to those two subjects? I was a crime writer at the time, you know, for a newspaper when, when Tupac Shakur was shot and it was sort of on my watch and been covering the crime ever since. And it, um, uh, I've always like to follow the underdog um, and in in the Tupac Shakur case and Biggie Smalls, they both were the underdog they, um, their, their crimes are unsolved and, and it appears officially unsolved but it appears they both were, were killed by street gangs but for, for different reasons I can't describe it really I just feel like I am in my element when I'm writing about it and when I'm covering it I'm passionate about the crimes I cover and and uh and I love that I was brought into this book to to uh consult on it and 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 help write it it's uh it's a great it's a great study and and the beauty of the crime book is it's across the ages and around the world for sure and I do want to talk about uh, some of the things discussed in this book some of them that obviously we do know a little about because they've been glamour I'm going to say Bonnie and Clyde most certainly have been glamorized in in that uh, wonderful wonderful movie and I just remember that one part where uh, Bonnie says we rob banks and it's just one of these things that (laughs) it's just such a romanticized story in in your experience were Bonnie and Clyde really all that? No they weren't glamorous at all and and they they were um, just kind of foraging to to make it as they were going through from state to state because they were the feds were on their on their tail quite actively. They killed a few people along the way too. You know, she there were there were claims that she never she never did any committed anything like that. But she certainly was a participant and and in aiding and abetting. But no, they they were not glamorous. But the but the media has, uh, over the years, it, it's become a, a quite a glamorous crime. But, you know, people back then helped them. They helped them get away. They gave them food. They sometimes gave them some place to sleep while they were on the lam. And it's uh, they were harboring killers. I, I think it's, it's something that most, like I said, most people aren't a part of. And so they're fascinated 
by is sort of intrigued by what goes on behind the scenes. Also, D.B. Cooper, Kathy, here's a guy that is so (laughs) mythical and it almost makes it seem to some that crime, number one, does pay. And number two, you can get away with it because I think a lot of us have the imagery in our mind that he simply disappeared with all that money and uh, lived happily ever after. Is there any indication that that might be true? Jumped out of a plane. Well, they never found his body. They did find some money, but but not all of it. A, A big chunk of it was missing has never turned up but I, I think there's there's an entitlement of course with the criminals they do you know they they do eventually you keep doing it eventually the odds are against you and you are going to get caught but um, with somebody like him I think part of the reason he's romanticized is because he did get away with it he disappeared into thin air and um, and so there's there's no ending to it and that's what drives drives people to the story, I think. Conspiracy theorists and everything come out of it, too. Same same thing with unsolved crimes. And in Frank Abagnale in the Catch Me If You Can is sort of the same thing, only you know, then he went to work for the feds after he got caught. Yeah, and I think that and, some people look at that and they're they're mystified because they see somebody literally switch sides and they wonder how the feds could actually welcome in somebody who is a known despot? Well, they part of it. I think he he got a he got a plea deal in exchange for less lesser time in prison, where they let him out a little early, so he could go to work for them because they they needed to know how he did what he did, so they could help solve other crimes, and so he actually helped them quite a bit in solving other crimes. I think it's kind of a, they had to hold their nose for a little while when they first brought him in, but it's, I think, for the better of the uh, community at, at large and trying to have these guys help them solve other crimes. I think that's how the police are able to do it. You also talk in your book about organized crime under the banner of uh, not only the mafia, which uh, where we live in northeastern Pennsylvania, Kathy, is uh, that that's a known commodity to us because we actually had, oh, yeah. we had it here. We had uh, some of the biggest and, and most well-known figures, including Russell Buffalino, who uh, some say ordered the hit on Jimmy Hoffa. So we sit in an area where this is a a reality to us and I guess in other parts of the country as well. Where people... Well, I lived in Vegas, so it was the same thing in Vegas. And people often say stuff like, well, you know, when the mafia ran stuff, at least we had an indication of of the the parameters of what you could do and what you couldn't. Do you find other parts of the country where that is the case? The same in Vegas. It it was the mob actually being there helped protect the cities they were in because no one else dared go in and do anything on their turf. And so the towns were rel- they were safe except for if you, you know, got in the crosshairs of the mob. They're, they're romanticized as well, but the mob is still alive and well. It's just in different businesses now. You know, not so much the uh, casinos, but maybe in some cities, but not in most. But I think it's, you know, the Sopranos TV show is a fine example of, 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 of uh, they're, they're almost, they've become almost sympathetic characters, and that's what draws people to them. Tony Soprano was a really likable guy, and, and he's uh, sort of a representation of lots of mob bosses. 
True. When I was a kid in the 70s, the other thing that was sort of romanticized here was the kidnapping of Patty Hearst because for a while during her kidnapping, she was held in in, uh, uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. And this is another thing where people look at this and you also have uh, John Paul Getty III where they, I believe, cut off part of his ear and sent it as as a symbol that they really had him. And mailed it to his parents. Yeah. Yeah. These things, again, are such... Uh, lore, especially with with Patty Hearst, because of her conversion and you know, with the SLA, where she seemed to take their side. Well, and that's the Stockholm syndrome. Right. In the book, we do there are examples of it in in the book because we do get into the psyches of the of the people who commit crimes, and and that's um, she became very sympathetic to them. Or they fed her, they housed her. Um, she was dependent on them, and then she she sort of turned on to their side and you know there's that famous photo of her in 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 a bank uh with a rifle so and she served some time uh, for it and since has written books but i but um there is that uh, i mean you look at bonnie and clyde and they were you know people like i said they were helping them they were helping them and uh, people people can um maybe it's sort of the side that they they don't dare step out of but they they can relate to criminals on some level. Absolutely. And you also have in the book many murder cases, which obviously continues to uh, be a fixation and a, a fascination to people. Where we, All these things, Kathy, they just seem to relate to where we live for some weird reason. And uh, we've had in, in our area so many cases that are very notorious, none that are in your book. But when we look back at uh, somebody like Lizzie Borden, for instance. Yeah. She has her own poem and she has uh, this mythology, but is it true that there are some real doubts about whether or not she was really the murderer? Yeah, I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence. And and I think, um, you know, when people start pointing the finger, you know, there's not a lot that the the person accused um can do especially back then and um she was yeah i'm i'm not i'm not convinced that she uh did it look at the black dahlia case that's uh you know in los angeles and i think partly these stories continue because they're not quite sure who did it and with a black dahlia of course that one's unsolved that is in the book and it's uh, and Lizzie Borden is of course too, and and I think that if the factor draws people to those crimes uh, crime stories as well, don't you think? Absolutely, and that notion. I think, Kathy, that people believe that there is a real chance that they can actually get away with murder. We know across the country yeah. there, are, there are probably thousands of cold cases where people actually have gotten away with it. And I wonder how much that plays into the romanticized version. You know, I can do this. And then maybe because of all these examples that you point to, I can I can just walk away from my crime. It's It, it seems with today's modern technology, DNA evidence, uh, cell phone, (laughs) smartphones, it seems that the window would narrow, but if somebody could get by and they they would sit down and and think about all the ways to cheat those situations, they they might actually be able to to do it. And across the country, like we said, uh, there are thousands of cases that have not been solved and they seem to be piling up to the point where investigators may be frustrated 
Well, I think there aren't enough investigators either sometimes, and that's why you end up with a lot of cold cases is, um, you know, their workload is just enormous. But I think also, um, uh, you know, some of these may be a one-time only crime, you know, especially if it's a passionate, you know, passion is involved. Um, But with the others, when they, they do get away with it, then they turn around and they commit the crime again. And, and as I've been told by years, for years by cops, that they, uh, they think they're so smart, but they're stupid and they do eventually get caught. And um, that's, that, that becomes the, the death of themselves, you know, because um, they do get a little too brazen and a little too, uh, and get careless and, and eventually they're caught. We have a story today about the missing JFK files from Politico. It looks like there may be more of a revelation, a a trove of thousands of long secret government files about the assassination of, of JFK. As somebody, that never came out in yeah. the uh, in the in the study that was done on it, or the report that they right. did. It was those those weren't a part of it. There's 3,600 files that are under wow. seal at uh, the in the uh, National Archives, and they may come out within a couple of weeks. For someone like you, that must be super exciting. Oh, it's very. I love uh, research. That's the thing, and that was the beauty of this book was the research that that needed to be done on it. And it's I just love the research end of it. And so, yeah, I love pouring over federal documents. That'll be fascinating to see within those documents if anything jumps out. You know, if there's anything in there, if it was a cover-up, because people have said for years, you know, that, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists and whatnot, mm-hmm. that uh, that Oswald was a patsy and, and um, that, you know, it was covered up. That's Kathy Scott, one of the contributing writers of the crime book. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.